is always a joy to be able to gather with God's people, and uh, we're looking forward to our time in the Word of God now together. And uh, I want to invite you to take your Bible and make your way to the book of Psalms. We're going to be in the book of Psalms this morning, taking a pause on our exposition of Ephesians, and uh, I thought that this would be a, a fitting text to uh, expound to us here uh, today as we, uh, we contemplate uh, Thanksgiving and being thankful to the Lord and uh, we did a little bit, bit of that on Wednesday, but I wanted to uh, take time to expound this particular psalm, Psalm 100, and uh, so let's make our way to that text, and the title of the message is Praise the Lord with Thanksgiving. Praise the Lord with Thanksgiving. And so let's read our text now together in verse number one. The psalmist writes and says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. And we come to this time of year and uh, we're reminded of the importance of being thankful. And I am thankful that there is a time and season set aside every year in which we focus on that. And uh, we all enjoy this season where we uh, reflect on God's blessings. We enjoy time with family and, of course, good food, right? We're about to do that today. We're looking forward to that. But the principle of being thankful is certainly not a one-time-a-year practice, is it? For us, it is to be the daily lifestyle of the Christian. Every day, the Christian is to be thankful. The reality is, is that we are called to be a thankful people, and if we are not a thankful people, watch this, we are a sinful people. Did you know that unthankfulness is listed as being sinful in the Scriptures. And friend, you and I as Christians, if anyone ought to be thankful, ought to recognize the hand who gives us all things, it must be us who know the Lord personally in our hearts. You see, we have more to be thankful for than we can even contemplate in one moment. God is infinitely good to His people, and even those who are enemies and at enmity with God, He is good to them. You understand that there is a rebellious creation around us that God still allows to live and breathe and go about their life. That is mercy. That is mercy in the goodness of God. When we contemplate being thankful, how can we express this thankfulness? Well, there's many ways that we could show thankfulness to the Lord, but foundational to being thankful is offering the Lord worship and praise and, and simply just expressing that thankfulness to Him in prayer. And I think that this is essentially what the psalmist communicates in Psalm 100. Now, this particular psalm is one of the most beloved of the church and has been throughout history. Charles Spurgeon, commenting on this psalm, he says, It is all ablaze with grateful adoration and has for this reason been a great favorite with the people of God ever since it was written. Let us sing the old hundredth is one of the everyday expressions of the Christian church. And will be so while men exist whose hearts are loyal to the great king. I think he's right in saying how precious how the, precious this psalm is to the God's people. But to give you a little background, this psalm is classified as a hymn. 
that was sung by the worshipers as they prepared to enter the sanctuary to offer praise to God. Now, you understand the book of Psalms is essentially a songbook. Uh, the saints would sing the Psalms throughout, uh, the, throughout history. And so this psalm is a hymn. It's one that the saints would sing as a way of praising and giving thanks to the Lord. It is placed in the book of Psalms at the end of what is called the kingship psalms. Psalm 96 through verse chapter 99, those psalms call the world to acknowledge the kingship of the Lord and for his people to worship him rightly. It is closely related to Psalm 95, which almost bookends the kingship psalms, urging the people to worship and praise and thank the great king. And as we look at this psalm this morning, we as God's people are called to remembrance of how we ought to praise the Lord, be thankful to the Lord, and the reason for that, the foundation for praise and thankfulness. So there's three points I want to point your attention here this morning and in this text of Scripture. And number one, you'll see in our notes, we see the expectation of gladness by believers. The expectation of gladness in believers. And we see this in the first couple of verses. Notice he says in chapter 100 and verse 1, he says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Now there's two aspects here I want to point out about us being glad and manifesting that gladness. We should firstly be glad in our song or in our singing. You'll notice that uh, the psalmist says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Now that, that term here, this statement, make a joyful noise, it's, it's one uh, Hebrew word, in the, one word in the Hebrew language. It's used 33 times in your Old Testament. It's a verb that was often used as a, to raise a cry for war, as a battle cry. Sometimes it would be a, a loud shout that, that war was about to happen. But then there's also other texts in which it is used as a means of rejoicing cheerfully and, and shouting in triumph. Often it was a cry of joy in response to the Lord uh, giving victory and, and blessing to the people of God. The same word is translated in Psalm 66.1 as shout for joy. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. And so with the psalmist opening with this word, it captures the beginning, uh, that in the beginning that God's people must enter the Lord's presence and worship with great joy in Him as they praise Him. Now, let's think about that for a moment. Why should we have a joyful expression of praise unto the Lord in our life and especially as we worship Him? Well, when we consider who God is and who we are, what He's done for us and what He continues to do, how could we not express joyful praise? Do we have any reason not to be joyful? Well, the answer to that is not much, not really, but the truth is, is our joy is often hindered or removed due to a few possibilities. I think one possibility is that we often in our lives, we forget or are not immediately conscious of all that we know the Lord to be and all that we know the Lord does. Sometimes we can go throughout our life and just not be thinking much about the greatness and majesty of God, what He's done for us. 
You see, the Lord warns Israel of this very thing in, in Deuteronomy 8. He says, take care lest you forget the Lord your God. And if you read through that passage, he's warning his people that, that their comfort and prosperity, if, what, what, what it would do to them if they were not actively living and focusing their hearts upon him. Friend, often comfort and prosperity deter us from our joy because our priorities get misplaced. We begin to look at what is circumstantial rather than what is eternal. He warns them about this very issue. Deuteronomy 8.14, he says, Then your heart be lifted up. You forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see, this is why when we come to worship, we ought to already be meditating upon who God is. Anybody else have trouble with that on a Sunday morning? seems like everything goes wrong on a Sunday morning, right? That's the most important day of the week. When our minds and our hearts are to be preparing to meet with the people of God because God is coming to meet with His people and we're here to worship and adore the living God. Nothing else in this world matters but Him in this moment. Not me, not you, not anything else. It's all about God. And so as we come to worship Him, this is how we ought to be joyful in our praise. Let me give you another possibility as why your joy might be hindered this morning. If we have sin in our life, that will always strip you of joy. You say, well, I've not been that joyful lately. You ought to maybe examine your life if you've got some sin that's hanging around, unconfessed, that you need to turn from. David experienced that after his sin with Bathsheba and he said in Psalm 51, 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with, your, with a willing spirit. Maybe thirdly, it's just the world and its troubles that overcomes our thoughts and deters us from thinking upon the glory of God and our joy that we should have in Him. Sometimes it's just circumstances, things you're going through in life and things that happen to you uh, in the day that try to, uh, to deter your mind from God's providence and His goodness and, and all that He does. Whatever reason uh, there may be that our joy could be hindered, here's what the psalmist points us to. He gives God's people an imperative, a command, make a joyful noise to Him. Make a joyful noise to Him. We have the greatest of reasons to be joyful. And these reasons are found in the character of God and His work on our behalf. You understand that this, 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 this term, though in the old times it was often used as victory over the enemies, think about it in terms of us today that you and I have the greatest victory imaginable in Jesus Christ alone. Christ has conquered and overcome sin our great enemy. He has overcome Satan, our great enemy. He has overcome death, our great enemy. And he has granted that victory to you, his people. And so you and I have great reason to shout for joy and to have a joyful heart in him today. Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty seven, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christians, we have immeasurable blessing to rejoice in today. Notice who he's calling 
who this call of making a joyful noise is unto. In verse 1, he says, unto all the earth. Well, why is this command so broad? Well, a couple reasons here. One, because in, in every land, every nation, the goodness of the Lord is seen in creation itself as it testifies of a sovereign, compassionate, all-wise creator. Psalm 19, 1 through 3, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, nor whose voice is not heard. So you understand there's a command to the entirety of the world to bow, rejoice, and worship the king over all creation. But we know that that does not happen at all except sinners are converted, right? Because sinners in their natural state, what do they do with God? They run away from Him. They try to ignore Him. They try to substitute Him with some other God to their liking or their making. So, so this, this impacts, firstly, even, for, even, even further, shows us uh, that this command, it anticipate, anticipates the Gentiles being brought in to the Lord by the work of the Messiah. Because now, after the work of Christ, what do we have? There truly is people from every nation and tongue that are being brought to Christ and praise Him and glorify Him with a joyful noise throughout all the earth. God said in this prophecy of the Messiah in Psalm 2.8, Ask of me and I will give, make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth for your possession. You understand Christ's work does not just reach Jerusalem or Israel. It has spread all across the globe, even to America where it one day reached you. And so we live in the era after the cross. When Christ is bringing people of every nation to himself, that's a universal call to mankind to bow before the king and praise him for his worth. We notice that our joy, while it is stirred inwardly in our hearts by the Spirit and by his truth, it is expressed outwardly in this text in our song, in our singing. You notice what he says in verse 2? He says, come into his presence with what? Singing. Come into his presence with singing. You understand that singing is a primary element of worship. You ever wondered why we gather and open up a hymn book and sing psalms? It's an element of worship. It's worship to the Lord. It's worship to our great God. You understand, we sing when we gather with the saints. If you don't like singing here, you're going to sing in eternity when you get there. All right, you don't you're not got to worry about uh, voices not being what you'd like them to be. By the way, it doesn't matter what your voice is. If you're doing it with joy in your heart, it doesn't matter how you sound. Just do it. Just give, give your heart to the Lord in that. We must sing to the Lord. It is a chief expression of joyful praise to Him. And as we sing, here's what it does. It magnifies the glory of God, but it also edifies the people of God. I love when we sing here. Singing the songs of scriptural truth, they edify my heart, even as they have this morning. Hebrews 13, 15, through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. We have every reason to be joyful and glad in our song. But notice letter B this morning, we should be glad also in our service. Glad in our service. Notice what he says there in the next verse, in verse 2. That first statement, 
he says, serve the Lord with gladness. With gladness. Now, it is plain from Scripture, as uh, we've seen even in Ephesians, that God's people are called to serve Him. This service is, to to- is the toil uh, and labor on behalf of the Lord for Him and through Him, unto Him. This includes giving ourselves to worship the Lord in the church. The, the verb here for serve. It can be used for any kind of work, but in a religious context, it is another word for worship. And so we think of the Old Testament structure. In, the case, in this case, it refers to the worship as spiritual service, such as participation in the formal worship in the sanctuary. You know, in the Old Testament, they would have had worship service in, uh, by means of the tabernacle and temple system that was in place. Today, we worship through means of the local New Testament church. And here's what we find with this, is that worship and labor and service often go hand in hand. Both work and worship are united as those who plan, prepare, conduct the service are working even as they're worshiping. And any, any of us Christians serving in any capacity within the local church, we are still doing this and we're to do it with gladness, he says. We're to do it with gladness. Now, now should, should we serve with, with any other expression other than gladness? Should serving the Lord be a chore or a drudgery or a burden or something we just wish we couldn't or didn't have to do? Here's the reality. You and I don't have to come to church. We get to come to church. I don't have to preach this morning. I get to preach this morning. You see, considering who God is and what he has done for us, we should be glad in our service to him. We think of the gladness maybe of those serving in the Lord in the Old Testament with the priests and the the Levites uh, uh, serving uh, with with a smile on their face perhaps. A glad countenance about them. And friend, one of the greatest needs today is for God's people to be glad in their worship and service of the Lord. Our gladness should shine forth. When somebody walks into this place filled with God's people, they ought not to see a bunch of people who are downcast and have, look like they have no hope. If there is ever a place to be filled with joy and gladness, it must be in the local church. You and I have every reason to be glad in everything we do. Serving Him with joy and gladness, it is a proper reflection of who the Lord is and that it is an honor to do anything that we can do for Him. It brings to my mind when the Queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon and the temple and as she's taking notice of God's people and those serving Solomon, those serving in the temple and 1 Kings 10.8, she says, Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. There was a gladness among the people of God at that time. And when I worked at Kroger as a cashier, if you ever been a cashier, that job gets really boring. I wouldn't want to go back and do that if I didn't have to, but it ha- sometimes you got to. But I'll never forget, there was this Christian man who would frequently visit that Kroger, and he would often come through my line, and every time he came into that building, he was either humming or singing some hymn that I recognized. And there I am having, you know, a... a puny day, bored out of my mind, can't wait to go, everything to complain about, you know how it goes. And this guy just walks through humming and hemming and humming and hemming, showing the gladness and joy of the Lord in his heart. 
And what that did was convicted me about my own heart and perspective. I ought to be more glad, even though I'm not in the best of circumstances. Now, here's the reality. We, when, we, when we don't serve the Lord with joy, we make what we're doing for the Lord look of little importance. Do we want our youth and the next generation coming behind us to see us looking at church as if it's something we just got to do and we can't wait to get out of there? If we, by all means, behave in this way, we cannot expect them to want church either. If anyone ought to manifest joy in serving and worshiping, it must be the people of God. And how can we do that? Well, Hebrews 12 tells us that. I won't go there for time, but just for for your own sake, the, the way that we keep our heart and mind glad in the Lord is by fixing our eyes upon Jesus. Because Jesus, who, who was going to the cross, the most intense suffering a man could ever endure, the Bible says that who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. How could anyone go to the cross with, with joy in their heart? You see, though Jesus endured great suffering, he looked forward to the joy of what the cross would accomplish in God's redemptive plan. His atoning death would purchase a people from every nation to himself and give them eternal life. So you and I can keep gladness by keeping our eyes fixed upon Jesus. So there's an expectation of gladness here in our song and in our service. Christian, take this to heart. We need this. But number two, and this is really the foundation point for everything else. This is the, this is the middle meat of, of why. Why we praise and joyfully worship. Why we offer thanksgiving. Number two, I want you to see in the middle of this text, the meditation upon God by believers. There should be a meditation upon the very essence of who God is. His character, His nature, what He, is, what he does for us. And so there's three things I want to point out here that, that are essential for us in this text. The first thing we must know and meditate upon is this, is that the Lord alone is our God. The Lord alone is God. Look at verse 3 with me. He says, know that the Lord, He is God. Know that the Lord, He is God. Now, you notice this word know because that's important for us. The praise and thankfulness we offer the Lord are based on what we know. All that we believe, who we are, and what we do as Christians is founded upon truth. Accurate knowledge given to us in the word of the living God. All of our life of faith is grounded in what scripture says is true. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so this is the foundation point. For the psalmist's call to praise and thankfulness. It is based on what we know. We are to know these things. And so these three things he points out for us to know is firstly, we must know that the Lord, he is God. Why is that so significant? Well, because this is the absolute truth regardless of whether there are other little g gods that men claim in this world. Now, the world is full of of false gods that receive praise and worship and service from mankind, but all of that is vain and empty. Why is it vain and empty, all the worship and praise and service given to all these other gods? Because there is only one true God. 
Any other God, so-called, is made up by man. It is not a true God. And so what we find here is that because there's only one true God, and it is the Lord, He alone is the one should be praised and worshipped. Now, some may think that they have another God or think they can just be independent of God. Well, I just want to live my life disconnected from God. He might show up here and there, or I might go to church here and there, but I'm really going to live my life disconnected from God. There's no way you can do that. Why? Because God is the God over all creation, and it doesn't matter how you live your life, you're accountable to Him on Judgment Day. Now, you may think you're disconnected from God, but you're not. You're not. God holds every person accountable. Every person is called in this text to know Him and worship Him and acknowledge Him as the King, as the Lord, as the God. David Dickinson rightly comments on this text and says, From the reasons of this exhortation, learn that such is our natural atheism, that we have need again and again to be instructed that the Lord is God, of whom and through whom and for whom are all things. Man loves to make up whatever God will satisfy his conscience, make him feel that he is spiritual without it being the one true God. But here's what we must understand. The God of the Scriptures, the God we're reading about in the Psalms here, He alone is the eternal, all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing, all-wise, holy, righteous God. There is no other. You see, His holy nature sets Him apart from all else. Not only does it indicate His sinless perfection, but the very meaning of the term means uniqueness or otherness, means that there's no one like him, none. The Lord is God, and there is no one like him. He is set apart from all others, and he must be recognized as such. God says through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 46, 5, God says, to whom... Will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? That's a question that answers itself. Who can you compare to me? The answer is no one. Who is like me? The answer is no one. He again says in Isaiah 46, 8 through 10, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Here's the reality that we have to understand. There's no room to debate God when it comes to who is God. He doesn't get voted in. He just is. He's the sovereign king. He is the one who doesn't, he, he, he's not challenged by any others. So, so you understand that he alone is God, and there is endless testimony to the fact that he is God. Since he is God, understand this, the more that we grow in our knowledge of him, the deeper and more devoted our praise will be unto him. Christian, the moment you got saved, you came to know God, 
But your entire life is a journey of continuing to know God. Ever learning, ever growing in knowledge of how wonderful He is. And I can testify this myself, that the more I have grown to know Him, the more I love Him and cherish Him and see the worth of His praise and adoration and thankfulness. Spurgeon commenting on this says, Only those who practically recognize His Godhead are at all likely to offer acceptable praise. And this is true for many things. The more you understand something or someone, the more you'll respect you'll have for it. One of the shows I like to watch is nature shows. And one of the, one of the ones that had come out was Planet Earth. Anybody seen Planet Earth? With technology now and everything they can do, they go to all these, all these remote areas of the earth and, and they show forth the beauty of, of, of the world and creation and high definition, great quality, right? Places that I would never get to see if they had not gone there. But watching that kind of a show, you hear one, two things happen. You hear them talk about evolution billions of years and you think, you guys are crazy. You have no clue what's going on here. Number two, you realize how glorious the Creator is. The more you know and see, the more you, more you acknowledge that, that glory that belongs to Him. And the same principle is true for other areas such as God's providence and power working in His life and our lives. As we grow, we grow in our knowledge of Him and our ability to praise Him more effectually. You remember when Elijah had his showdown with the prophets of Baal and Elijah's basically mocking them. Where's your God? Is He asleep? Come on, wake him up. Elijah taunts him, pours water all over his fight, all over his halter, and calls upon the Lord, and the Lord rains fire down from heaven. And what was the testimony of the people that day? Here's what it was. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. There is no God that challenges him. Creation and scripture testify to that unaltering truth. But notice with me letter B also. The third thing we need to know, not only do we see that we need to know the Lord is God, we see the Lord alone also is our Redeemer. He's our Redeemer. Now look at verse 3 for a moment. You look at the middle of this verse. It says, it is He who made us and we are His. What does that bring our attention to? Well, there's two truths here we can glean from this, with one of them being the actual focus of the context. Firstly, we are His people because it is He who made us, implying He is our Creator, of course. Since the Lord alone is God, He is the one who made us in all things, the world, the sun, the moon, the stars, the earth, the waters, plant, animals, you name it. And the crown of His creation is us as mankind. David said of this, Psalm 139, 14, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. You and I are the crown of His creation as mankind. That's a wonderful truth. And what should the Creator expect from His creation? Praise and thankfulness and worship to Him. We have to bow before the Lord our Maker. But secondly, notice that when the psalmist says, it is He who made us and we are His, he is specifically speaking about His people being called unto Himself as His people. Now, it is true that the Lord is our Creator, but the context is covenantal in language with the people of Israel. You see, the name for Lord here is Yahweh, the, that which is the, the covenant name that identified himself with his people. And so the psalmist here is speaking of the Lord making his people his own by calling them out and consecrating them to himself. 
Turn with me, if you would, to Deuteronomy for a moment. You'll see a backdrop to this very principle of the Lord doing this. Deuteronomy 7 and verse 6 through 8. And notice that he's speaking with his people Israel through Moses. And he says to them, For you are a people holy to the Lord God, your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it is not because you are more than more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You understand as you study Israel's history, we learn that the Lord by his sovereign hand called out Israel as his own covenant people. And this is seen in the very beginning, what we looked at in Sunday school today, is the calling of Abraham. You see, God called Abraham out of paganism unto himself and said, I'm going to make of you a great nation and that through that nation or people would come the one through whom the rest of the world would be blessed, Jesus the Messiah. And so this calling initiates, shows his his covenant with his people, uh, initiated with Abraham and on forward. But we understand from Scripture that this calling originates long before he called Abraham on that day. Because this was God's purpose before the world ever came into existence. Because he is the God who declares the end from the beginning. You see, it is also true of us and the saints in the New Testament and the Old. Paul wrote to Timothy of what God had done in saving him and his people. He says in 2 Timothy 1.9, Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, or before time began. So what do we make of this? Here's what we find very plainly. Exactly what the psalmist says. He says, it is he who made us and we are his. He made us his people by grace alone. No Israelite singing this psalm can say, oh, I'm so glad that I have made myself his. God had made them his. It was all of grace, friend. And you'll notice that he says, we are his. Now, with this statement, there is a textual variant here, in which both renderings communicate essentially the same thing. Some earlier translations will read, not in the place of his, which makes it translate, and not we ourselves, which that's also a good translation. Either way, you translate this principle is the same. We are God's, and this cannot be attributed to us. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, the New Testament principle of salvation. What does it say, church? We've gone through this very recently. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So so what do you notice here? 
our salvation, our calling, our being His people, it is holy of grace. Grace is the undeserved and unearned merit or favor of God. And by His calling and saving us, we see that we have been created in Christ Jesus. We are His workmanship unto good works. See, many people have that reversed. Well, I've got to, I've got to make, get God's approval or become His by being better or doing this or doing that. No, friend. That's an impossible task. We are His only by grace alone through faith alone. And faith is that persuasion and trust and commitment unto the Lord God alone. Christ. And this is what regeneration has done in our hearts. It has made us new. David Dickinson rightly says this, The glory of our regeneration or new creation belongeth unto God, no less than the glory of our creation and natural birth. And it is no less madness to ascribe the work of our regeneration to our own power than to ascribe our first creation to ourselves. None of us created ourselves. None of us can make ourselves into a new creature spiritually. It is God's work and power. John Gill also comments on that. As we have no hand in making either our souls or bodies, so neither in our regeneration, where it is the work of God upon our hearts that is solely the Lord's work. And here's what we see with the big picture of the psalmist is saying, as God's redeemed people that he has made unto himself, he's made them his own, his people must usher forth the praise and thanksgiving that he is worthy of. Christian, if you're saved today and you know it's by grace, you know that he is worthy of yours. That he alone receives the glory for who you are in him. Letter C, notice the Lord alone is our shepherd. Notice in this text, as you come on down, the next part of this verse, know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. Notice, we are His people. And the sheep of His pasture. This is the context about the people of God, that He has made us His own. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Now, the Lord's people have always been likened unto sheep with the Lord being their shepherd, right? What does the shepherd do for his sheep? There's a few principles here I'll give you very quickly. The first thing that he does is he seeks the sheep. He seeks the sheep. Why? Because the sheep, before they knew him, were lost, wandering about this world in their sin. He seeks his sheep. Now understand that, that, that the sheep here are lost, but the shepherd does not fail in finding every sheep that belongs to him. Jesus gave this parable, or this illustration, in uh, Luke 15, 4 through 5. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. The Pharisees had been getting on to Jesus for sitting with sinners. Because they thought, well, we're the religious ones, that's where... That's that, those, only the religious ones are God's people. You understand that God saves the most vile, wretched sinners imaginable. And we ought to praise Him for that. Because the truth is, any one of us would be that same person were it not for grace. Not only does He seek His sheep, secondly, He saves His sheep. 
You see, Christ, in order to save his sheep, had to give his life for the sheep. This was the only way of redeeming them from their sinful bondage. And I think the best passage on this is John chapter 10. Let us read this together briefly. John chapter 10. And look with me, if you would, to verse 11, and we'll come down through verse 18. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. What do you notice that Jesus repeats through this text? He says, I'm laying down my life for the sheep. Because that's what a good shepherd does. He's speaking of his atoning death on the cross by which he would pay the penalty of sin. But you'll notice he also talks about his life being taken up again. Can you guess what that might refer to? His resurrection from the dead. His resurrection. This is the gospel here he's giving us. So Jesus is the shepherd of his sheep, and he seeks his sheep, he saves his sheep through his own death and resurrection. But not only that, he also secures his sheep. Once he has them, they'll never be lost. Look at this in John 10. Come down further. We see this, we see this exchange between them. So the Jews gathered around him and said, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them what, church? Eternal life. I give them eternal life, and they will what? Never. Perish, never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Friend, if that don't cause you to rejoice and thank the Lord that you are eternally secure in the almighty hand of God, I don't know what will. Now, we rejoice at this text, but his... Listeners took up stones and wanted to kill him for what he just said. Which shows the reason that they didn't believe. They were not his sheep. Not only does he secure his sheep, he also sustains his sheep. I like this one. The shepherd sustains his sheep. You see, though the sheep have been purchased by his blood, found through the gospel call, secured eternally in his hand, they are still cared for in their earthly life that they continue to live. Remember the wonderful words of David in the most beloved psalm? Psalm 23, the Lord is who? My shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. 
I don't know about you, but in my Christian life, I over and over again am thankful that God is a faithful shepherd day after day. Everything I am, everything I have, everything he gives, it all comes from him. My health, my home, my family, my, my, my clothes, my food, my water, my vehicle, everything you could name comes from the shepherd. He's the one that provides it. As we think about this, are there adequate words to describe how wonderful the Lord is? No, there's not. But what must knowing these truths stir us into? You see what the psalmist wants them to know. He wants them to know the Lord is God. He wants them to know the Lord is the Redeemer who made them His own. The Lord is the Shepherd who cares for them. And here's the application here. Number three, the application of gratitude by believers. Simple application for us and then we'll be done. I know you're getting hungry. I can hear stomachs growling. Or maybe that's just mine. We must resolve to have a heart of thankfulness. That's something, that needs to be something we resolve to do. Why resolve to do that? Because we're prone not to do that way. Anything in the Christian life resolves, needs conviction and resolution in our hearts. He makes clear that the fruit of knowing all that he just said the Lord is, is what brings us into the presence of God with a thankful heart. Verse 4. Verse 4 of our text, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. Do you see that it's as they're entering his gates and entering his courts that thanksgiving and praise is to be flowing forth? Now, this describes the approach of God's house in the tabernacle and temple. As one approached the tabernacle or temple, they would have begun to see the surroundings and see the priests and see what's going on, smell the incense, see the sacrifices being made, hear the prayers and praises being offered. It was an atmosphere of worship, a place where they were meeting with God. And it was where they were to profess their thankfulness and manifest it in their worship of Him. See, when one comes to the place where the Lord is central, That is where our thoughts and hearts must be stirred into thinking about Him. As we think of the Lord, we must bow in thankfulness to Him for all that He is, all that He's done, and all that He continues to do on your behalf. Psalm 95.2, let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Spurgeon says this again. In all our public service, the rendering of thanks must abound. It is like the incense of the temple which filled the whole house with smoke. How the heart of thankfulness should permeate this place when God's people gather. Praise and thankfulness should permeate this place because this is the timeless principle for us, for all of God's people. We're to be giving thanks always, Paul says in Ephesians, and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5.20, you understand that coming to the house of worship, it's a journey in which we're coming here to worship and gather and praise the great God who saved us. Give him the thanks he deserves. 
Lastly, letter B, we see that we have reason to continually be thankful. Verse 5, the psalmist says, for the Lord is good. That just summarizes everything. The Lord is good. David said, oh, taste and see. The Lord is good. How many of us have tasted and seen that the Lord is good? It tastes good. That visual is so wonderful. Tasting and seeing how good the Lord is. You see, the goodness of God surpasses our comprehension. As he says, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. You see, this demonstrates that God is impeccably faithful to his covenant people. More so than they are to him. We're called to be faithful. Do you understand that God is ever more faithful to us than we even are to him? He's completely dependable. He always keeps his promises. They never fail. And so what more could spark in us, could this spark in us than joyful praise and thanksgiving? Christian, we have zero reasons to be unthankful and an innumerable amount of reasons to be thankful. God has been immeasurably good to us wretched sinners and we must praise him for that. And I'll close with one final quote from J.I. Packer. He says this, we need to discover all over again that worship is natural to the Christian as it was to the godly Israelites who wrote the Psalms and that the habit of celebrating the greatness and graciousness of God yields an endless flow of thankfulness, joy, and zeal. Christian, let us be thankful. There's so much here that's been unpacked and more that could be in just one little psalm, but we can see why it's a favorite of the church for a long time. And I believe that this is a call for us to live it out. We must praise Him. We must be glad. We must be thankful. We must know Him for all that He is and all that He's done. So do we give Him the thanks that He deserves? Do we praise Him like we should be? Let us examine our own hearts in that matter. Perhaps today, You're not sure that you know him to begin with. May I say to you that you can never know know God without Christ. You must believe on Christ alone. You are the sinner. You are the sinner. He is the Savior. And only repentance and faith in him are the guarantee of conversion and everlasting life. Let's stand to our feet as we close with the song. Father in heaven, we bow before you this morning and thank you for this rich psalm. So much here that is unpacked and could be further unpacked. Father, we truly cannot even comprehend in a moment all of the things that we should thank you for. Have mercy on us, Father, for our own thankfulness. Cause us to be more conscious of who you are how good you are, what you've done in making us your people by grace alone, how you continue to daily be with us in providence, providing for us, protecting us. We must praise you. We must be joyful in you. We must be glad in you. Use us as a light to show forth your goodness to the world around us. In Jesus' name.